Pages. Dusty Pages. With Melinda. And? EJ. Wow. <laughs> Why did I say both of our names? <laughs> <laughs> EJ, I'm very excited about today. Because it's Friday. I mean... No, it's not. <laughs> it's not Friday. It's not Friday, um, but I'm excited for a different reason. Do you know why? Um, oof. Did you have... Did you see a nice bird? <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> I always see a nice bird. Did you... Did Luna come up and, and rub on you? She did. She did. Mm. And meowed. So that was nice. No, but... um. I'm excited because of our book today. Oh, we're doing another book. We're doing a book. Oh, I thought we should, probably. Yeah. Um, so this book, well, I shouldn't say this book. This is another book that I've replaced from my past. <laughs> so uh, the original copy of this book that I had, I got as a teenager. I think my mom might have given it to me or something. She collected old books, too. And she was always finding, like, old vintage weird things <laughs> and giving them to me. From from the thrift shop. From the thrift shop. That's right. Um, so this is a newly thrifted version of this book. We can pretend that this one is your copy. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to now because it's the only one I've got. You can write your name in it and say, belongs to Melinda Mosier, 1995. That's not my name. It was in 1995. You oh. would, would you have written your... <laughs> Your future uh, marriage name in your book? Oh, I didn't know you said 1995. Um, I guess I wouldn't have written anything because I was five. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways. Um, so this book is called Charm and Personality. It's an etiquette book. EJ, oh. So listen up. <laughs> yeah, I need this one. It's by um, Marianne Mead, uh, who I guess was like kind of famous for etiquette books at the time. Nowadays, like no one really knows who she is. I like her anyways. <laughs> okay, so the outside. Um, another difference between this book and my copy from when I was a kid. Um, this one's red and mine was blue. Oh. And that is pretty, that's a pretty stark difference. Do you remember when yours was from? Yeah, it was from, I think it was 1942. And this version is 1946. Yeah. yeah. So this printing. one, oh, so slightly yours more updated. Been, yours might have been the fourth printing in November 1942. Oh, there you go. Yeah, maybe. We're guessing. I'm guessing because I don't remember. Um, yeah, this one's red and it says charm personality with like a big old C. I like it. It's nice. It's also a nice size. You know, like a little book uh -huh. that is like just it's like the size of your hand. It's like a phablet these days. It's not quite <laughs> small enough to put in your pocket. Right. Unless you have big ass pockets. Yeah. <laughs> you could fit this in your um, Jinko jeans pockets. Uh -huh. <laughs> No, um, but this is like the size of book that I like. It's like the size of your it's very outstretched convenient. hand. It's very nice to hold. Good to hold. Fun to read. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right, let's get inside, shall we? It's called Charm Personality, A Modern Guide to Good Form. Ooh, modern. <laughs> uh, by Marianne Mead, formerly a member of the editorial staff of the Junior League magazine, Author of How to Write Good Social Letters. Well, guess what book we're going to do next. <laughs> Gotta learn how to write those social mm -hmm. letters. Remember when people used to write letters for, like, just to keep up with their friends? Uh-huh. Wow. What losers. Losers? <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't use the telephone like us modern kids. <laughs> right. That's all you do all day. Just call your friends after school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah, so originally copyright 1938, but this version is 1946. Uh, so, I mean, it was good enough to make several, like, a new version every yeah, year. at least seven uh, printings. Right. <laughs> and this is, uh, I guess, like, just post-war. It's interesting that it kind of was popular during the war, too. Well, you had to have a lot of edit. You had to practice etiquette. Because when those soldiers come home, they're going to be looking for dates. <laughs> you had to stand out. Right. That is the sole purpose of being a woman. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we got some contents here. The co- Oh, man. It's taking me back. I loved this book. I really did. And it's not like I like followed, followed the advice in it. I just more like to like laugh at how things have changed. Um, but there's Foundations for Beauty and Health, which is like... Diet, exercise, cleanliness, weight, good posture, just like tells you how to be mm. <laughs> in every aspect of your life. Also, the care of the body, like how to shampoo your hair and stuff. So, so interesting to me. And we'll find out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then obviously, like the point of the book is charm and grace and personality, I guess. Um, there's a lot of stuff in here. So we'll we'll have to like keep it concise, but we'll 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 stop at all the fun parts, mm-hmm. huh? Okay, chapter one. What constitutes charm and personality? No one knows exactly what electricity is. was <laughs> 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 not the first, the first part of the sentence. Yet man knows how to produce and use it in the same manner. No one knows exactly what charm and personality are. Yet we know their component parts and can develop them in ourselves. Charm and personality are difficult to describe because no one thing produces either. This is this reminds me of like that video. No one knows what birds are. Yeah, look around <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, look around you. <laughs> it's like birds. What are they? No, no one, one knows. knows. <laughs> Electricity. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> Magnets. How do they work? <laughs> also, the previous owner of this book has underlined um key phrases throughout uh this time they've underlined the person who seeks charm and a pleasing pleasing personality must frankly analyze himself and carefully note his assets and his liabilities so as to make the most of his assets and overcome his liabilities that's a really strange thing to do well i guess it kind of sounds like a therapy exercise (laughs) but like to be like "Mm, i'm going to make myself charming Uh let me write down all the things that are charming about myself like how would you know and all the garbage things about (laughs) me and all the things i know are shitty about me like surely if you can make that list you don't need you don't need this book yeah (laughs) so basically it's going to teach you how to like wear clothes and take care of your body so that people like you how to act at a dinner party that kind of thing Mm. chapter two foundations for beauty and health health comes first Health is our prime and indispensable asset, but we do not always give it the attention that it demands. In the incessant and hurried activity of modern life, many of us tend to forget it almost entirely, thinking that it will take care of itself. And remembering it only when fatigue, an unhealthy appearance, or even illness becomes a strong reminder. Ambitious people in particular are likely to impair their health and appearance through not getting enough sleep, over-exercising at times to compensate for a sedentary occupation, working long hours without rest, worrying about their future. Thus, the strongest of them may be burned out, 
as 50, 40, or in some cases... Oh, at 50, 40, or in some cases earlier. Thousands of people who are less guilty of overworking themselves nevertheless undermine their health by excesses in eating and drinking, that's me, careless exposing themselves to bad weather, inadequate exercise, that's me, reducing fads, <laughs> the use of harmful patent medicines, hmm. I guess that's me, putting off the ne that necessary visit to the doctor... And so on. Since health is the source of our energy, a prime element of beauty, a constant influence on our moods and attitudes, the very foundation of the personality, we should do all in our power to keep it. Hmm. I guess that's good advice. Next section is water. Man's earliest ancestors spent all their lives in the water. We, what, well. <laughs> Wait, what? Okay. Oh, she means like fish. Right, right. <laughs> I was like, it's Wait. One <laughs> of these water people I never heard of. <laughs> uh, we differ from them, but we have never yet quite escaped that first dependence upon water. Beginning with a glass of water the first thing in the morning, you should drink freely throughout the day, at least six to eight glasses, unless for some reason the doctor has advised against it. So eight glasses has been like, was that common? I think it started. Uh, like common sense for like the last hundred years? Yeah, I think it started around this time or maybe a little earlier but it also was like relatively arbitrary right it was just like kind of an average mm -hmm. or something that didn't really have any basis in fact <laughs> all i've heard is that you should um drink so that you don't feel thirsty yeah and if you feel thirsty drink do not drink water from wells springs and brooks that may be polluted by drainage from nearby cesspools outhouses and similar Ooh. sources of danger Know where the water you drink comes from. That's a good point. That's a good point. Don't drink the <laughs> pond right next to your outhouse. <laughs> Elimination. Each day your body must get rid of its waste products. Gross. Why are we getting right into this? Got it. Off the bat. That's part of health. That's the biggest part of health. Any doctor will tell you that elimination is the... The, that's the first thing they teach you in medical school. Uh, if these are not removed promptly and regularly, they tend to form poisons that get into the blood and impair health generally. The bowels should move at least once a day for the normal person. The they best time move. for a bowel movement is immediately after breakfast. Oh, okay. Is it? <laughs> they just make that up? Well, I, right. I drink coffee in the morning and that makes me poop. <laughs> so maybe I'm... I guess you're right on I'm track. I'm the picture of health. <laughs> If your diet is correct, if your habits are regular, and if you exercise sufficiently, you should have no trouble with elimination. I don't like that they call it elimination. I know, it's such a, like, I, sanitized word for uh -huh. it. But it's it makes me picture, like, opening up the sphincter <laughs> and things coming out. <laughs> I mean, that is what happens. I know, yeah. but it, it makes, but me, picture, yeah, makes me picture clinical. the process... And not, yeah. like, the product. Same with bowel movement. I never liked that because, like, yeah. I don't want to picture your bowels moving. Moving around, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a little too too much. The use I also, of, wait, I like how she, uh -huh. earlier, because you know how, like, nowadays people only really say bowel movement? Uh-huh. But she's, she says, um, the bowels should move at least once a day. <laughs> That's such a strange way to say that. I mean, I guess it's the same thing, but it's like, uh, my bowels are moving. <laughs> my grandma used to say... Like, did did you did you make a BM? And I didn't know what BM meant, and I always assumed that it was butt mess. Because <laughs> oh, yeah, that's you, what it is. You told me that before. 
I mean, it's reason. That's reasonable. What for, else could for it a mean? Kid. Yeah, <laughs> you're like, well, it, she's definitely talking about my butt. I know that. And she's talking about poop, and poop <laughs> is a mess. If you find that proper attention to your diet and proper exercise do not give you normal bowel movements, consult a doctor. That's good advice. Mm-hmm. Okay, now it's getting into the diet. The chief fuel foods are carbohydrates and fats, which include starches, sugars, and fats, bread, sugar, butter, bodybuilding foods. For adults, the necessary quantity of the so-called building foods is small. The amount required is not based upon whether one's life is full of hard labor or is sedentary. The building foods are, which I guess they mean protein, right? Uh, Meats, dried peas and beans, fruits, eggs, fish, gelatin, milk, nuts, etc. They must mean protein. Yeah. But they aren't saying, they don't ever say protein. I wonder if they... Maybe that wasn't a thing. they didn't know what proteins were. Yeah, I guess not. Well, no, I'm sure they knew, but they're just... Maybe that wasn't like a thing Mm. people talked about. Yeah, that's probably more right. (laughs) The body needs not only energy and building materials, but elements that keep its functions, such as those of the heart and the liver in proper balance. Those include all the vitamins, uh, which is why you eat vegetables. Vitamin A is present in kale. Liver. What? You don't like liver? No. Well, I made you liver and onions for dinner, so you better like it. Oh, I'm not going to like it. Oh. <laughs> and you didn't make me dinner. Don't no. be ridiculous. <laughs> we all know the woman does that. <laughs> you learned that in this book. Right. Do you? No. <laughs> well, yeah, probably. Um, well, they give a lot of examples of vitamin A foods, so I'm going to skip that. Well, this is interesting. <laughs> so they talk about vitamin B, but this is before they had found vitamin B. Uh, 12. Well, or the other ones. The, yeah, they what they thought was vitamin B ended up being several different vitamins. Right. So they just named them B1, B2, etc. Yeah, she just it just says vitamin B. This is back when it was just one thing. Huh. And then vitamin C, vitamin D, we know all those. Vitamin G. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's vitamin E and then vitamin G. No vitamin F. No vitamin F. But also what's vitamin G? <laughs> Vitamin G is required for growth and general health. It dissolves easily in water like mm. vitamin B, but is not so readily destroyed by heat except in the presence of alkalis, such as soda. It is found in milk, cheese, eggs, liver, kidney spoon. I might be making it up, but I think this is one of the ones that they thought uh, they thought this was a separate bite now. Hmm. I don't remember. Watch SciShow's video on the history of vitamins. It's a, it, it'll teach um, you all about it. No, we better find out now. Alexa, what's vitamin G? According to Wikipedia, riboflavin, also known as vitamin B2, is a vitamin found in food and used as a dietary supplement. Yeah, I guess it could be riboflavin. So I think that's what it was, was they had discovered vitamin G and then they found that it was was water soluble. So they lumped it in with the vitamin B, called it vitamin B2. I don't remember exactly. Hmm. The principal problem of diet, after you have learned how much and what kinds of food you need, is that of adapting your taste to its principles. Mm. Fortunately, foods are available in such variety that the average person, even with his dislikes, can find among the foods he prefers those which are necessary to his well-being. I am kind of picky, aren't I? 
But I like all the basic food groups. I just am like very specific about certain things. Like I don't like raw onions, and I don't like peppers, olives, pickles, pickles. Yeah, you like condiments. You don't like tasty, tasty, uh, (laughs) complex foods. I guess that's not true. (laughs) I also I like those things when they're cooked usually, but like when they're raw in something, ugh. No, thank you. I eat a raw onion. I'll do it. Yeah, I know you will. <laughs> you do do that a lot. Yeah, when I'm cutting onions, about half the onion is going to be gone because I, <laughs> I eat it. I like onions. Not going to apologize for it. Well, good. You All shouldn't. Right. It's got vitamin R. <laughs> right. It's got vitamin O for onion. <laughs> All right. Exercise. Many of us lead such sedentary lives in modern civilization that we suffer from lack of exercise for which the human body was built. You said it. Oops, that's me. Sitting at a desk all day. Mm-hmm. Riding in automobiles. Mm. <laughs> and in general, living without much physical effort may seem comfortable at times, but in the long run, we cannot thrive upon it. Ooh, they have a breathing exercise. Stand erect with hands at sides and feet together. Well, we're sitting, but we're going to try it anyways. Raise arms upward from the sides slowly, inhaling deeply as you do. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) And then you just hold it That's all it is. Doesn't even say to hold it. It just says to do that and never stop. (laughs) (laughs) Exercise for posture and general circulation. Stand with feet together and arms at the sides. Lift arms overhead, bending left knee upward towards chest. Return to original position. Repeat with right knee bending upward. Original position. Repeat 10 to 20 times, alternating the knees. Nah. Nah. (laughs) They got lots of cool exercises. I think I remember trying to do these when I was um, a teen, but it like didn't do anything because they're very mild it's like literally just like lifting up a knee or something well, i feel like they, they're talking about being sedentary but how sedentary could you be in 1938 <laughs> like their their version of sedentary is probably you you've only walked ten thousand steps that day right <laughs> yeah into well, town into the I post mean, office people did have desk jobs you know not everyone was like working in a factory or whatever so mm. and there were automobiles <laughs> <laughs> the iron horse, they called it. <laughs> Exercise to make waist and hips slender. Sit on the floor with legs straight forward, feet together, with hands at sides and slightly backward for support. Roll the body to the right, lifting the left hand and bringing it down next to the right hand. Now stretch and tense the leg and hip muscles, keeping the same position. Then lift and turn your head so that you can see the backs of your knees. This is that kind of thing that they used to believe in, like, when they had that belt exerciser, Mm. that if you just, like, moved a certain part of your body that you're having problems with, that that will exercise that specific Mm. part. Like, I mean, obviously there's, you know, weightlifting and stuff, but, like, you're not going to make your waist slimmer by moving your waist, Mm. you know? Anyways. We did, we, people, people back then were pretty stupid. (laughs) Right. We are so smart. We're the picture of health. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Sleep and rest. To one who thoroughly enjoys being active in the give and take of life, sleep often seems like a waste of time. Mm. I don't know what they're talking about. I know. I love sleep. (laughs) The average adult spends one third of his time in bed. What could we not do with those wasted hours? 
But the hours are not wasted. Whoa, she turned it on its head. <laughs> they are quite as important, quite as creative as the hours during which we are awake. Because sleep builds up what we have broken down and destroyed in our daily activity, it is essential to health, beauty, disposition, alertness, to our complete physical, emotional, and mental well-being. The only way to find out just how much sleep you need for maximum health is to experiment. Insufficient sleep will leave you feeling tired, dull, without vitality, too much sleep, which you probably do not get, <laughs> okay, <laughs> will leave you feeling loggy. What? The right amount of sleep should make you feel energetic, alert, and optimistic throughout your day. If you have trouble with sleeping problems, the best policy is to consult your doctor. I do like that she keeps telling you to talk to your doctor. Yeah. Not just this book. Because they don't know. Uh, fresh air and sunlight. Your body cannot function properly without a good supply of fresh air. That's true. The oxygen in fresh air is an enemy of germs, particularly those that cause respiratory diseases. And it burns up the waste products of the body. Well... Well, <laughs> I don't know about that. I also don't know about it being an enemy of germs, other than it, you just get fewer germs when you're in the fresh air. I, I guess, guess you, I guess it oxidizes the waste carbon in your body, and that's Somehow like burning I, it. I don't know if that's what she means. Okay, let's see. Clothing, um, tight-fitting hats, high heels, shoes that pinch. Tight belts and garters that retard circulation not only make you feel uncomfortable and look uncomfortable, but may do permanent damage to your body. So don't wear things that are uncomfortable. Makes sense, right? Cleanliness is necessary for both your charm and for your health. One who has the habit of cleanliness in body and clothing has the first prerequisite of making a good impression among people, and at the same time is guarding himself against sickness. A quick cold bath and a brisk rub down with a rough towel every morning will not only keep your skin clean and healthy, but give you an alertness to start the day. Wow, man, they're saying to do a cold bath. They're not even <laughs> talking about like a warm shower or anything. They didn't have warm water back then, probably. <laughs> Be sure that your bath is cool enough at the end to close the pores of the skin. Otherwise, you may catch a chill when you go into a cold room or outdoors. <laughs> Will you just catch a chill from being from cold? being in a cold bath? <laughs> your por if your pores are open, the yeah. air can get in well, and like that's not make true. you cold. That's not true. Um, you can close your pores by making them cold, but it doesn't have anything to do with heat. I don't think. I think it's just whether or not your pores the are open. air your pores are open and the air blows through you <laughs> and cools down your insides. Yeah. Interesting. It's like it's like little ventilation holes. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay, so now we're going into weight. The reason I'm interested in this one is because um, there's a table that says what, what weight you should weigh. Well, it actually says um, I, the, this is a table of average weights of men and women as compiled by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. So that's trustworthy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the weight is in pounds according to age and as ordinarily dressed so it includes your clothes i guess mm. uh so there's men and women um for men five foot seven that's me that's you and it goes by every five years of your age so, so you're 25, 25 to 29, 29 you should weigh 146 <laughs> <laughs> maybe uh when i was 12 and a half <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty low. I mean, I don't know what, what doctors suggest that you should weigh, but 146 seems low. That seems a little low for me. <laughs> 
But again, these are average weights of like what people weighed back then. So it's not I even mean, necessarily I mean, healthy. It's this just... was during the Depression. <laughs> well, no. I mean, 38? Ten, 10 years later. The first print was in 38. Do you think this table was updated every I don't know. edition? Oh, someone wrote. Someone I know, did someone some did long some division. math here. So for me, let's see, five foot six. 25 to 29 i should be 138 yeah no not close to that mm. but that does actually seem right for what my actual weight should be really yeah i think so i think i should be about 140 hmm. i'm not <laughs> let's be clear on that but i think yeah i think like 140 is is normal for me uh yeah there's some like long division on the side here and she she's got some answers like 110 153 so i don't i don't know what she was trying to do here she's dividing 12 into 14 or no she's dividing 14 into 179 maybe that was what she weighed at 14 hmm i don't know why would she be doing that division i don't understand maybe this is totally unrelated mm-hmm. we're gonna crack this code. but it's right next to the weight chart so you would think it has to do with weight i don't know if your weight differs only moderately from the weight given for your age and height in the table, you have no need for worry regarding your weight. In fact, until the early 30s, it is safest to weigh a little more than the average. Oh, good. That's good. <laughs> because until that time, a little extra weight will provide you with additional resistance against disease. When you have passed 35, it is best to be slightly under the average weight. Oh, I should have said the weight goes up. So, like, for me, when I was 15 to 19, I should have weighed 128 and when I'm 55, I should weigh 153. I mean, I feel like that's achievable. I think I could get to, what should I be, 5'7". I could get to 163 by the time I'm 55. <laughs> if I start working right now. <laughs> I don't think that's the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird that they don't have, like, 60 and above. Well, I guess you can assume that, like, the weights wouldn't be that much different at, after that point. But it's kind of ominous. It's yeah, like, that's... it's like, well, you're not going to live past right. 60, so Nobody let's not worry about 60. it. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> and it is interesting that the weight just keeps going up and doesn't go down. Because, like, as you get older, well, maybe not to 60. But I always thought your weight goes down when you get older. Right? Mm. You lose muscle or something. I don't know. Um... Anyways, I mean, she's pretty measured here. She says, you know, go to your doctor. If you're too far overweight, you might need to exercise. That's good. I mean, that's not crazy, right? Good posture. Good posture is quite as necessary to your health as it is to your appearance. A person who habitually goes about with head half inclined, shoulders drooping, who does not habitually stand erect, who slouches or in other ways lets his body fall into awkward positions. Ooh, this is me. This is me. <laughs> I do, I'm doing that right now. Yeah, like, my body's reading, pretty awkward at the moment. <laughs> reading this book, I'm like slouched over, head down. <laughs> Maybe I should try to like sit up. But that feels weird when you're reading. I don't know what it is about reading. Reading makes me want to just like slunch, slouch right over. Mm-hmm. Just telling you what to do, basically. <laughs> In lying down, especially in bed, keep your body straight. That is, so your spine is not twisted. Do not pile pillows high under your head or shoulders. Sleep in a bed that does not sink down too much under your hips. 
In walking, keep erect with a full, graceful gait, adapted to your particular physique, with your feet preferably pointing straight ahead. My feet don't point straight ahead. Oh, you got pigeon toes? I don't know. I don't think I have pigeon toes, but I just, like, I never knew this when I was younger, but... Then people started telling me that I kind of, like, <laughs> waddle when I walk. Like, not a full waddle, but just, like, my feet point outwards. Like, <laughs> instead of straight, they point out. I don't know. I'm just weird, I guess. Yeah. That's all right. Everyone can be a little different. Yeah. <laughs> but not too different. Right. Let's see. Sickness and injuries. Here's a few hints on how to avoid sickness. Follow faithfully all the rules you know about health. Follow the advice of your doctor. Become acquainted with your body and its needs so that you will not run unnecessary dangers. Avoid people who have contagious diseases. True. Good advice for the modern day. Wear a mask. (laughs) Does it say that? No. (laughs) Be sure that the water and food you take are pure. Mm. Use a Brita. Pure food. Be clean. Wash your hands after toilet. (laughs) Let's just say that. I don't know why that's funny. Wait. It does say wash your hands after toilet and before eating. So in between toilet and eating, you probably should wash (laughs) your hands. Probably should wash them. Wash your hands after toilet. (laughs) Avoid common drinking cups. Only use the fanciest drinking cups. (laughs) (laughs) Have yourself vaccinated against smallpox, immunized against diphtheria. Diphtheria. That's such a hard word to say. You say it. Diphtheria. No, you said it good. Don't expose yourself unwisely to bad weather. Eat correctly. This is all the same advice you gave before. (laughs) Basically, be healthy and you'll be fine. Mental attitudes. Your body and mind have a direct influence upon each other. They are hard to distinguish from each other. Just as a person who is in poor health is likely to lack enthusiasm and ambition and develop careless, pessimistic mental attitudes... So a person with poor mental habits, worrying, hurrying, suspiciousness, certainly (laughs) does not improve his health. Cultivate an attitude of optimism, friendliness, tolerance, decisiveness, persistence, open-mindedness, and realism. Be optimistic. Yeah, just change your mental attitudes. (laughs) Don't be sad. Don't be sad. Okay, so, the care of the body... While it is possible to be physically good-looking without being charming, it is almost impossible to be charming without the element of physical charm. This does not mean that you must be beautiful or even pretty. Many very plain women have physical charm. (laughs) (laughs) It means, rather, that your general appearance must suggest cleanliness, good grooming, physical well-being, and as much health and vitality as possible. The charming woman realizes that neglect of any part of her body weakens her charm as a whole and may even nullify any other charm which she possesses. Therefore, the charm seeker neglects nothing in the care of her body. I guess we're charm seekers. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone who reads this book is seeking charm. (laughs) The figure. The attainment of a lithe, graceful, well-proportioned figure is based primarily on two factors keeping your weight near the average for your height and age, and taking sufficient exercise. Uh, So she's talking about, like, accumulating weight in in unbecoming spots, such as your waist, your hips, your upper arms, etc. Young people who indulge in tennis, swimming, vigorous walking, dancing, are less likely to acquire clumsy figures (laughs) than those who prefer to curl up with a book. That's us! I mean, that's pretty ironic being in a book. (laughs) We're reading a book right now. 
play bridge or attend a matinee. That's us. <laughs> Go for an automobile ride instead of a That's walk. Me. But let no young person think that because she is young, her figure need cause her no thought. The mature woman, or any other woman for that matter, who finds it necessary to give up such activities, must substitute other less strenuous but more routine exercise. She may join a class for limbering and stretching. Take exercises given over radio programs. That's before they end of TV. That's cute. <laughs> you turn on your radio and sweat to the oldies, but I guess... But it is the oldies. They'd be the newies. The newies. <laughs> Follow her own course of exercises to the music of a phonograph. I want to listen to a phonograph. Uh-huh. You only get to exercise for two minutes and then you get to flip the, the shellac. <laughs> but that's all you need is just two minutes. Just two minutes. In the 40s. The hair. If your hair is naturally beautiful, it deserves the best of care to keep it lovely. If it is not beautiful, naturally, it must have every attention to bring it as near the state of perfection as possible. <laughs> For when a woman's hair is truly her crown of glory, as the poets say, it can make up for countless little imperfections in face and figure. First of all, the hair must be clean, free from oil, dust, and dandruff. Second, it must have a lustrous, healthy appearance. Of course, it should also be neatly and becomingly arranged. Just gotta arrange my hair. Becomingly. The matter of dressing the hair is treated in a later chapter. All these things are accomplished by means of brushing, massaging, shampooing, and possibly by special rinsing. Special rinsing. Special rinsing. Brushing. If you are one of the people who object to brushing your hair, no matter the reason for your objection, let us make this suggestion. Try brushing your hair for a few minutes each night and morning for just one week. Then judge for yourself whether or not the result is worth the slight effort required. <laughs> Basically, they're like, if you don't think you like brushing, just do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't. Well, I brush my hair before I go in the shower, but I don't brush my hair because it gets rid of my curls. It makes me have like... Too straight? Frizzy. No, it makes me have like frizzy, puffy hair hmm. instead of curly hair. It like separates curls. I mean, I guess it's fine if you have like super white, like straight hair. Sorry, I don't mean white. I mean like Caucasian. <laughs> 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 like if you got extremely straight hair, then it's better to brush it. But I don't know. I just use a comb, don't I? When properly done, brushing the hair will not spoil your wave or make your hair greasy but it will prevent the dry, brittle, dead appearance of the hair, which results from improper care. But it will spoil my wave. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe you're not doing it properly. That's that's possible, I suppose. After each using, wash the brush thoroughly with soap and warm water. What? Apparently people wash their brush every day. Is uh, that, do people still do that? I, maybe if you're very clean. I've never known anyone who's done that. Oh. I don't think. Yeah. I mean, I mostly clean my brush. I've washed it before, but not like regularly. Hmm. But I also only use my brush for when my hair's already dirty. So and <laughs> I don't really care that back much. then brushes were made out of like horse hair, like boar, or yeah, boar's hair or something. <laughs> so maybe you had to keep it cleaner; it would get moldy. I don't know. Yeah, making making that up. <laughs> A few drops of ammonia in the water will hasten the cleaning process as it cuts the oil, which coats the bristles. And then put that ammonia right on your head. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Massaging. Scalp massage should preferably precede brushing or shampooing. It is meant to exercise the scalp. <laughs> exercise it. And stimulate the flow of blood to it. 
It also loosens dandruff, dead hair, and the scaly, the scaly incrustations <laughs> on the scalp. Gross. <laughs> so that they can be brushed or washed out of the hair more easily. Who has scaly incrustations? That is not normal. <laughs> How often did people bathe in the 30s? Because maybe like if you only bathe once a month. You I get... think she was saying daily, but hmm. like a cold oh, yes, water bath, right. not necessarily like sh- soap and stuff. Uh, let's see. If you can comfortably manage it, let your head hang down. This is how to massage your scalp. Let your head hang down below waist height while massaging the scalp to temporarily increase the flow of blood to that area. Place your fingertips and your thumbs firmly on the back of the scalp. You gotta try this. Then with a circular and slightly pinching motion, move the hands forward toward the forehead and then around to the sides until the entire surface of the head has been covered. This does actually feel really nice. (laughs) Oh, that's nice ASMR, Uh isn't it? (laughs) The idea is to make the scalp move around on the skull. Why does that sound bad? (laughs) (laughs) If the hair is inclined to be dry, as it is after a permanent wave. Oh, like a perm. A perm? Yeah. Hmm. Use a little warm olive oil in massaging, but do not use too much unless you are going to shampoo afterward. Okay, interesting. So that's supposed to, like, stimulate... I mean, people massage their scalps still, right? I don't I do not do it, though. Like, ever. Don't they just do it for... Because it feels good? It doesn't have, like, any, no, I think, any benefit, does it? I think people it? do it to try to stimulate, like, growth and stuff. It does feel good, though. Hmm. Especially when you're, like, kind of achy. Uh, shampooing. The hair should be shampooed at least every two weeks. <laughs> right? Okay. I would be a grease ball. Mm. Mm-hmm. The feet. (laughs) The proper care of the feet involves more than just a quick cleansing in the shower every morning. That's all that I do. Mm -hmm. The entire surface of the feet, including the soles, the back of the heels, and the toes, should be scrubbed vigorously with a stiff nail brush or a flesh brush. Flesh brush. a flesh brush. Once a week, trim your nails. I mean, this is fine. Uh, Chapter four, makeup and cosmetics. Excessive, obvious makeup is just as ruinous to the general effect of charm as any other form (laughs) of excess. Therefore, the charming woman modifies her makeup to suit the time and place. Types. There are, in general, five types of women. All right. (laughs) Classified according to their coloring. Uh, We learned a little bit about this in uh, How to Charm with Color, remember? These are blondes, brunettes. Oh, right. Olivettes. Titian blondes. And Titian brunettes. I did want to say titty in there, but, <laughs> but I feel like it's it's Titian. Maybe it's Titian? 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 All right, we're going to go with Titian. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah, Titian blondes and Titian brunettes. Blondes include all light-haired women whose hair does not run to reddish tints. They have fair complexions as a rule. Brunettes are dark-haired, also without reddish tints in their hair, and they generally have complexions that may be called fair or tawny yellowish. Olivettes may be blonde or brunette as to hair, but they have an olive complexion, of which the underlying shade tends to be greenish rather than creamy or rosy. Titian blondes have golden reddish hair and fair skin. Titian brunettes have hair of an auburn or mahogany color. They may have light or dark complexions. So I have no idea which one I am. Are all black people, according to this book, yeah, (laughs) I would say Titian brunettes because it says... They have dark complexions. Yeah. 
But then again, like in this type of book, dark complexion complexion doesn't necessarily it just mean means that. Like a tan white, right? Person. Exactly. It could just be like slightly tannish white. All right. Um, I don't know which one I even am. Well, I mean, I dye my hair red, so. Yeah, it's hard to say. I don't even know your hair color. <laughs> well, my original hair color was kind of like a light brown. So I guess maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe I am Titian Brunette. Who knows? I'm not a blonde, that's for sure. <laughs> In selecting a face powder, you should endeavor to match the tone color of your skin, but the powder should actually be one or two shades lighter. Never use white powder or that called flesh color, which is really pink. Human skin is neither white nor pink. <laughs> Oh, they go really in-depth about the the powder. And rouge, so-called from the French word for red, is the powder or paste used to heighten the coloring of the cheeks and lips. When skillfully used, it can considerably enhance a woman's good looks by accenting her good features and distracting attention from her facial shortcomings. <laughs> <laughs> the entire body should be powdered after the bath, though with a bath powder which need not necessarily match the skin in the same degree that face powder must blend with the complexion. Bath powder. So people used to make... So it says the powdering not only improves the appearance of the skin, giving it a soft feminine look, but it actually makes it feel soft to the touch as a woman's skin should. So they they would use like like baby powder all over their bodies? I like baby powder sometimes. Not all over. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, I use baby powder when I have, like, a rash or something like that, but, like, all over your entire body all the time? After after you bathe, you go through a lot of baby powder, and <laughs> it'd make a mess. Yeah. Interesting. Making up the eyes. In general, the eyes should be made up only for evening wear. For daytime, all that is necessary is a little mascara on the lashes, or, if the lashes are naturally dark, a little Vaseline <laughs> or a Brilliantine to add luster. Wow. You're going to coat your eyes in All Vaseline? All you do is put Vaseline on your eyes. Okay. In making up the eyes for evening wear, care must be used to avoid the theatrical appearance, which often results from overemphasis. A dark line traced along the edge of the eyelashes will make them look much thicker than they really are. A little mascara brushed on the lashes makes them seem longer and heavier than they are. The lashes will also made to be look longer if they are curled. Uh, shadows are made up on the eyes by a form of cosmetic called eyeshadow. <laughs> the shade selected should be that which seems best to bring out and emphasize the color of your eyes. As a general rule, eyeshadow should be a few shades darker than the eyes themselves. For example, if you have dark blue eyes, you should select a very dark blue eyeshadow. Oh, interesting. If you have light blue eyes, you should select a medium blue eyeshadow. How, how weird! Like, you should... Your eyeshadow should be the same shade as your eye. Well, like they said, a little darker, but the same shade as your eyes. How weird. People don't do that now? No. <laughs> well, I mean, you can put blue eyeshadow on, but anyone can, not just blue-eyed people. And I wouldn't put blue eyeshadow on daily. That's, that's kind of crazy to me. Like, nowadays, most people just use some form of brown or, like, tan. I just don't know anything about fashion, so I don't know what's weird and what's not. <laughs> Yeah, like, they're even saying that you should use green if you have green eyes. And green eyeshadow is, like, hard to pull off. At least for me it is. Interesting. Chapter 5, Charm and Grace. 
Affectation and grace, in spite of the fact that they are often confused, are not at all alike. The latter is natural and simple, so much so, in fact, that it may never be commented upon or consciously appreciated as a factor in the charm of an individual. The former is artificial and sincere, an attempt to exhibit what is not natural or real. Far from being inconspicuous, it instantly attracts in in attention. However, the effect created is not usually pleasant, and its insincerity makes one wonder what the individual is really like without his veneer of mm. affectation. Therefore, since grace is simply a reflection of inward serenity, charm, and beauty, she who seeks it must train and control both her mind and body. At present, however, we are concerned chiefly with the physical expression of grace. She wants to learn about grace. Mm. <laughs> this is a section about how to stand and walk. The most graceful way to walk has been found to be a modified version of the Indian's method, which is to walk on a single line instead of on two lines. The toes should be pointed forward or slightly outward, whichever feels more mm. comfortable. That's me. <laughs> then imagine that there is a tape stretched before you and try to place each step on the tape. Is that really the most graceful way to walk? It I mean, does that's look like, nice. That's like the model walk, uh -huh. right? But like, what if you were walking that way all the time? You may wouldn't, feel... Wouldn't you look kind of silly? You may feel a little awkward and bow-legged at first, but don't give up on the idea too soon. I think if you make it look good... I don't know, that's what... That's what... You gotta be charming. I guess. You gotta make people think, oh, you're so graceful that you walk... Like a model. Like one all foot the time. in front of the other. I mean, it does look good, but you can tell that someone's doing it, you know? Try to adapt your walk to the time and place, also. On the golf links, a long stepped, free swinging athletic walk is appropriate and desirable. But the same gait as you cross the ballroom floor in a long, flowing evening dress is both inappropriate and incongruous. <laughs> On such occasions, your walk should be more leisurely and more graceful, with each foot placed carefully before you and your weight balanced on it before you take the next step. I like to walk. How do I walk? I take, like, little steps. I got short legs yeah, and that's a long true. torso. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what you should do with your hands, how to mm. walk up and down stairs. This section is what to do with the eyes. Many people seem to feel that it is a little awkward to look directly into the eyes of the person with whom they are conversing. Mm. Instead, they look over or a little to one side of the head, or they drop their eyes and look at him directly only now and again. If this makes you feel more comfortable, of course, there is nothing wrong with it. But actually, there is no better way to express interest in rapt attention than by looking into the eyes of the person who is speaking. I do feel like it's uncomfortable to just, like, look at their eyes the whole mm -hmm. time. I do it when I want them to know that I'm listening. Yeah, I feel like I do it in, like, serious, like, professional yeah. situations yeah. when I don't want to look like I'm like, uh, I don't know, you know? But most of the time, I do drop my eyes. I think in Japan, it's, like, rude to look into, like, your boss's eyes. Mm. We should do that here, because I don't want to look into my coworker's eyes. <laughs> I don't want to look in anyone's eyes. <laughs> I'd prefer if we could... I, if, we did, if we could do... All only audio conversations from now on. I think I'd be fine with that. I don't need huh. to see you. You don't need to see me? No, I'll look at you still. <laughs> but someone at the grocery store? I don't need to see him. Yeah, that's true. 
But I guess you should just be nice. Just be nice. <laughs> I guess I won't switch to only audio conversations quite yet. <laughs> but no matter what you decide to do with your eyes, don't let them dart restlessly around the room. That's me. When Min is telling me a story, I like to look everywhere except her face. Yeah. And I, no- I, gotta think, I noticed I gotta it think too. real good about it. I gotta think about the story she's telling. <laughs> I can't use any of my visual processing. Right. You might, as, in my brain. you might as well just close your eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you should get like a blindfold. Uh-huh. And then you'll my feel story more comfortable. Time, my story time blindfold. <laughs> How to say goodbye. Oh. If at some time you should be called upon to say goodbye to family and friends, knowing that you would not see them again for a long time, or perhaps never again, there would be no rules of etiquette to govern the length of time you took to say goodbye. You would naturally wish to delay the moment of your departure and would have many last-minute things to say. However, we are not referring to this type of goodbye, but to the simple leave-taking of one's hostess and friends. Above all things, on such occasions, make your goodbyes brief and go promptly. We have all probably mm. met the types of person who talks for an hour or more or Ugh. about going home before he finally rises from his chair, gets God. his wrap, says goodnight, and starts toward the front door. Yeah. Uh-huh. But the walk to the front door is the slowest, most exhausting part of the whole procedure. The guest retreats step by step, slowly and reluctantly, meanwhile regaling his host, hostess, and all others who will listen with all the stories that he forgot to tell during the oh, earlier part no. of the evening. I oh. do know this. Once at the door, he either forgets how to open it or is seized with a deadly fear of the knob, for he calls upon all his conversational powers to delay the fatal moment when he must open the door and go out. Only when the host and hostess are reduced to the point of collapse does he gain the courage to open the door, call a last cheery goodnight, and leave. Yet he probably never thinks of this as the reason for his not being invited out more often. Oh! That's cute. I like that little story. That is annoying, isn't it? Especially when you're the host and you're like kind of done and there's one person left and you're just like, you know, trying not to be rude, but also like, I want to go to bed. (laughs) I can't go to bed until after you leave. (laughs) And also I finished cleaning up after this party. So can you just go home? (laughs) If you've ever come to one of our parties, uh, we love you and we never want you to leave. (laughs) But if you do leave, leave all at once when everyone else does. (laughs) Chapter 6, Clothes as an Aid to Personality. Clothes are really a projection or outward expression of the wearer's personality, and as such, they play an important part in making first impressions on other people. Long before you have had a chance to display your conversational charm, social graces, or good sportsmanship, the other person has learned many things about you and formed a first tentative opinion simply by observing your clothes. Rude. (laughs) Do not follow the trend of fashion too closely unless it is becoming to you. Instead, adopt the current styles to your own figure and requirements. Remember that prints help to disguise a too thin figure, and large prints make the figure seem much fuller. Solid colors have a slimming effect. Fabrics such as satin, which reflect the light, make the figure heavier, while dull finish fabrics give the illusion of slenderness. Is that true? Is that true? I was going to ask. Is that a I don't that know. A, a thing people say nowadays? I mean, I guess people say like satin is clingy. Like it shows all of your bumps and whatnot. But I don't know that it makes you look heavier than you are. Interesting. Dress to your eyes in the daytime and to your hair at night. Huh. 
In other words, wear the colors which make your eyes lovelier in the daytime, and at night wear the colors which make your hair more beautiful. That's interesting. Because your your eyes aren't going to be as visible at nighttime? Oh, maybe. Just some real insider booty guru (laughs) YouTube shit. I know. The quiet type of person with nondescript hair, pale complexion, and unexpressive eyes should avoid browns, tans, pale pale grays, and very pale pastels, as these colors add nothing to an otherwise dull appearance. (laughs) Instead, (laughs) such a person should experiment with richer, vital colors with more character. She might find black a good color. I always think of black as a plain color, but I guess on someone pale it might look... Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, or perhaps a soft, rich blue or green. But if you don't feel comfortable with that, then, like, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Don't listen to this book if it makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember reading this and thinking it was strange. So, do not wear sport shoes with an afternoon dress, a dressy coat and dress with a sport hat. Nor really sporty gloves with a formal coat and hat. I really have no idea what the difference is between those things. <laughs> like, what makes it sporty or dressy or afternoon? I don't. I don't know. What does How, that mean? Uh, no, like, I think I, no I know idea. what. I think I know what formal and maybe even dressy means. But sport hat. <laughs> What's a sport hat? Like a NASCAR hat. <laughs> Like a baseball cap? I don't (laughs) think that's what she means. If your clothes budget is limited, it is wise to decide on one or two basic colors and then buy shoes, hats, gloves, purses, blouses, etc. of a harmonious shade, thus avoiding the necessity for several sets of different colored accessories. That's pretty smart. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like a capsule wardrobe. Mm, Right. Where you have like 10, 10 items or something. If an accent color is used, be sure not to repeat it too many times in the costume. They call their outfits costumes. Mm -hmm. For instance, if with your blue suit you wear a blue blouse with red buttons, you might wish to accent the red buttons with a small boutonniere of red flowers or a tiny red feather in your hat band. Uh. (laughs) This is in good taste, but do not overdo it by wearing the feather, the boutonniere, red purse and gloves Mm. and perhaps matching red earrings Mm -hmm. and a bracelet Mm -hmm. of red. Mm -hmm. Such splashes of bright color break up the harmony of the whole and give a spattered appearance. Mm -hmm. I actually think it sounds pretty fun. No, it's spattered. (laughs) Sorry, you don't have good taste. Is it spattered if it's all the same color, though? That's like monochrome. Anyways. No, because it's blue and then also red. I know. I think that sounds good. Maybe maybe I do have (laughs) bad taste. (laughs) Okay. Correct dress for women. Clothing may be classified in five general groups. Informal day wear, formal afternoon wear, semi-formal evening wear, formal evening wear, and sports wear. How do you, how do you know the difference? <laughs> Informal day wear. Informal day clothes are suitable for all the usual daytime occasions. Street, shopping, school, or office. A well-chosen morning costume may be made to serve for even the most formal daytime occasions. Many chic women wear informal day clothes until they dress for dinner. Getting dressed for dinner? Yeah, you gotta dress up to... (laughs) So everyone at the table thinks you're charming. So your family doesn't hate you. 
even though the afternoon's activities include a formal tea or reception, a formal wedding, or a cocktail party. However, there is a good deal of pleasure in dressing especially for the afternoon, if this is convenient, as more latitude for expression is permissible in richer colors and materials, jewelry and furs, perfume, and accessories. I can't imagine dressing for the afternoon. That's too much. <laughs> like, I understand dressing for dinner, maybe. Semi-formal evening wear. Semi-formal occasions bring many uncertainties as to proper clothes in their wake. When a woman dresses for a really formal occasion, she has very little doubt as to what she should wear. But the degree of formality for informal and semi-formal evening occasions is so variable that a woman often finds herself in a quandary as to her costume. (laughs) (laughs) A costume quandary. (laughs) Formal evening wear. Formal dinners, dances, attendance at the opera, if one sits in the orchestra, boxes, or stalls. Is that is that different types of clothing, <laughs> depending on where yeah. you're sitting? <laughs> is it? I don't know. And all other strictly formal occasions call for formal evening clothes. Formal evening dresses may be as low-cut and as splendid as means permit. With dresses of this type, an evening wrap and no hat should be worn. No hat. <laughs> Slippers may be simple or very elaborate. Gloves are optional. Some seasons, long white gloves are almost uniform. At other times, they are conspicuous by their absence. It's weird that gloves felt like a whole article of clothing just stopped being popular. Yeah, and like you only wear them when it's cold now. Hmm. Wonder, it is strange because gloves are pretty convenient. Like you don't get your hands dirty, and like, like the, it seems nice to not have to touch everything. <laughs> Especially nowadays. <laughs> yeah, really. Sportwear. Spectator sport frocks are theoretically the type of clothes worn by those who look on but do not actively participate in the sport. In reality, they are informal day wear for the country. Such dresses may be of cotton or linen, silk, knitted materials, or heavier sport materials when the weather requires. They are tailored, simple in design, and sparingly trimmed. I guess I wear sport wear all the time. Mm. (laughs) Like plain dresses. Uh Uh, Let's see. The woman who actively participates in sports really needs no advice on what to wear. She knows that freedom and comfort are all important, Mm -hmm. and with those requirements in mind, she chooses her clothes to suit her individual needs. But they're like, well, but we're still going to give you advice. (laughs) For tennis, either shorts and a blouse or a short-skirted tennis dress is suitable. The blouse should be cut so that it does not interfere with free movement of the arms. Ugh, I don't want to play tennis in a blouse. blouse. I know, people like in the 1800s or whatever, you see pictures of people playing badminton, but they're all dressed up in that Edwardian bullshit. What a mess. What a nightmare. (laughs) For golf, one one may wear a skirt, sweater, or blouse, and perhaps a tailored jacket. That's all. Those are the only sports. Uh (laughs) Those are the only sports they're giving advice for. Bathing suits. Let's see. Persons who spend more time on the beach usually choose bathing suits primarily for their looks and not so much for their comfort in the water. Mm -hmm. One-piece suits do nothing to hide one's physical shortcomings. So unless the figure is good, choose a suit with a skirt attached. (laughs) (laughs) 
slim young girls often look very well in slacks, overalls, or pajamas on the beach. But a fitted beach coat is usually more becoming to the mature figure. Beach coat? What are they talking like about? Like a cape? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. Pajamas on the beach. Well, hmm. if they say so. I guess. Correct dress for men. Informal day wear. For business and informal day wear, men wear sack suits, single or double-breasted. Sack suits. I don't know what that is. Shirts <laughs> may be of white or colors, but the colored ones should be conservative and blend harmoniously with the suit. Violent shades of purple, blue, green, etc. are not <laughs> worn by the best-dressed men any more than checkered or gaudily striped materials. Shoes, socks, and ties should be conservative in design and color and should harmonize with the color of the suit. The top coat or overcoat should be of semi-dress or sport type. The hat worn with such a costume would probably be a fedora or perhaps a derby. In summer, the suit may be of lightweight material and the accessories may be brighter in color. The hat may be of straw or summer weight felt. In the country, a dark coat and flannel or linen trousers may be worn to luncheon to an informal dance and other occasions. That's um. informal wearing a suit? Yeah, I guess, I guess you wear a suit all the time. Uh-huh, yeah. Formal day wear. Uh, formal day wear for men consists of a morning coat or cutaway. It is usually of Oxford gray chivois. Is that how you say that? <laughs> I don't know. With it should be worn gray trousers with thin black stripes, a white shirt, wing collar, and either a gray tie or one of gray, black, and white stripes. It's weird that they're specifically yeah, telling you yeah. to wear gray. Yeah, they. I guess they didn't get that specific with uh, how to dress as a woman. Yeah. But they they want all the men to look the same. Right. Semi-formal evening wear. For informal evening parties, attendance at the theater, dining at a restaurant, at home or as a guest in another's home, or any other occasion which requires a certain degree of formality, but not formal evening, evening clothes, a man wears a dinner coat or tuxedo. What if you wore a tuxedo to have dinner at your house? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's I know, a little, it's so bizarre. And then for that... It's not, a little much. That wouldn't be the formal evening wear. So right. what is formal evening for wear? For all formal evening occasions, which include attendance at the opera, formal dances and balls, formal dinners and formal evening weddings, a man should wear formal evening dress. No. The formal evening coat, swallowtail coat, does not fasten at the waist. With it is worn a white waistcoat, white tie, white stiff bosom shirt, and wing collar. Shoes should be patent leather pumps. Wait, wait, wait. So swallowtail coat, is that a tuxedo? I think it's the same kind of coat as a tuxedo coat. But with no butt. But you're wearing a tie and a wing collar. I don't know. I don't know. Don't know nothing. Sportwear... For general sportwear, a man may wear a tweed coat with matching or contrasting trousers, a golf suit consisting of knickers or slacks, or possibly slacks and a sweater. Knickers are not at present so popular as slacks. The shirt may be soft-collared or of the sport type with an open neck. A cap is correct with sport clothes in the country. For tennis, for tennis shorts are permissible for men, but many men prefer to wear white duck or flannel trousers. Tweed, though. I don't want to play sports in tweed. <laughs> Cocktail parties, luncheons, dinners. Yeah, just wear some clothes. <laughs> you know, I feel like the advice is the same. It's like, well, is it a formal occasion? Mm -hmm. Wear your formal clothes. Manners in the home. 
Do not be misled into believing that you must have a special set of manners for use in the home. On the contrary, the really well-bred person has only one set of manners for use at home and in public, with his family and with strangers, with servants, and with the socially prominent. As you will see, this is a practical necessity, for if you have more than one code of manners, you must decide on each occasion which code you should use. For example, when a woman enters a room in which a man is seated, he will stand automatically, if he has only one code of manners. But if he has several, he will have to reason the action out somewhat as follows before he decides what to do. A gentleman should stand when a lady enters the room. But is she a lady? Yes. Well, I'll stand. No, she won't expect it. Then I'll keep my seat. It's only my wife. She won't mind if I don't get up. But we have company, and the company manners require that I stand. The other men are standing. All right, I will too. <laughs> to be convincing, your manners must be as natural and as automatic as breathing. Respecting privacy. Although members of a family share many things in common, they should also respect each other's privacy, which includes not not alone privacy of person, but of thought, action, and personal possessions. I think she must have meant not only. Anyways. Letters. Everyone knows that it's rude to read other people's letters, even if they are accidentally left open on a table somewhere. It is equally rude, however, to ask who the letter is from, inquire about the contents, or demand that you be allowed to read it. <laughs> is it rude to ask who it's from if they're, like, reading it? Yeah. Well, I guess. We don't really read letters that aren't addressed to everybody, you yeah. know? Like, if we get a letter, it's for both of us. Mm -hmm. Or if it's just for me, it's nothing or anything personal, you know? Maybe it'd be, like, DMs nowadays. Right, or, like, texts. Who's DMs? Who, who's DMing you? <laughs> no, but I guess, yeah, it would be comparable to, like, texting. Texts, sure. Telephone. If possible, the telephone should be placed so that one can have privacy and quiet while talking. In many houses, this is not possible, so the family must make up in courtesy what is lacking in convenience. They must not consciously listen to what is being said, and they should also refrain from unnecessary noise or loud talking. This does not mean, however, that conversation should give way to a dead silence <laughs> until the telephone call is completed, but rather that the family should continue to talk in low tones. Yeah, and also, like, don't ask who's calling... Or what you talked about, which again seems strange to me, especially if you're all in the same room. Mm -hmm. Like obviously you're gonna tea. right, you're gonna you're gonna know what happened. <laughs> I guess it's rude to be listening, but courtesy at the table. In a busy household, it's quite likely that dinner and Sunday morning breakfast will be the only meals at which members of the family will all gather. In fact, these gatherings may well be their only point of social contact with each other. Oh, really? <laughs> Therefore, they should be more than the mere serving and eating of food. They should be made pleasant social occasions at which the members of the family have an opportunity to renew their acquaintance and enjoy each other. Each person should appear at the table well-groomed and neatly and completely dressed. <laughs> <laughs> completely. While it is permissible for an elderly woman to wear a dressing gown at breakfast, others are expected to wear daytime clothes. <laughs> <laughs> table manners. Among the Eskimos, well, I'll take that with a grain of salt, it is considered very good manners to eat noisily, with much smacking of the lips and belching in order to show that one fully appreciates the food. But our table manners... <laughs> Oof. This, this is a little... Yeah, it's a little problematic. It's a little problematic. Our table manners are based on two principles. One, that the food is not as important as the company. 
Two, that the food must be consumed gracefully, unobtrusively, and with no mannerisms which might offend others. Wow, this really tells you every step of how to eat dinner. <laughs> it's like how to get to the table, take up your napkin, lay it across your lap, then wait till everyone has their first course. Water glass. Before drinking from the water glass, one should always wipe his lips with his napkin so that they will not leave a smudge on the rim of the glass. Before drinking from mm -hmm, the water glass? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and of course, he does not drink from any glass while his mouth is full of food. Sometimes you gotta wash it down, though. I do that all the time. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I know. Is that rude? I guess that might be rude. Ooh, removing pits or bones. This is mm -hmm. actually useful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> food which has once been put into the mouth may not be removed at the table. If you get a mouthful of food so hot that you cannot swallow it, it is permissible to take a drink of water. But this difficulty can be avoided if you test your food by taking only a small bite at first. Pits, stones, small bones, etc. should be cleaned as well as possible in the mouth and then unobtrusively removed with the thumb and forefinger. Gross. Do not try to use your fork or a spoon in place of your fingers for this purpose. How would you Can you imagine you like sticking a spoon in your mouth and shoveling out a pit? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Neither is it good manners to hold your napkin up as a shield while you remove such things from your mouth. Really? I feel like that's better than Maybe just like draws attention it. to it. Yeah, I, I guess so. Um, if food or small seeds get caught between your teeth during the meal, they must be allowed to remain there until you can remove them in private or brush your teeth. A well-bred person does not use a toothpick in public, nor does he run his tongue around his teeth, especially when others are present. I do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> You gotta get it. You gotta. It you just gonna leave, sit there and be you annoying. Leave that in your teeth the in whole your time. Craw. <laughs> Salting food. This is for you, uh -huh. Jay. I love salt. You love put, me some salt. You put salt on everything that you eat. In spite of the fact that some people feel that salting food at the table is discourteous to the cook, it is permissible if you can do it without ostentation. However, it is rude to taste each thing rather suspiciously <laughs> and then violently shake salt all over your plate so that neither the hostess or the other guests can help noticing that the seasoning did not please you. If the salt is served in a little dish, you should take some on the salt spoon, put it on your plate, and distribute it where you wish with your fork. That seems so weird. Why wouldn't you sprinkle you it? Sprinkle it with the spoon, with right? With the spoon. That's the point, right? I don't know. A salt cellar. Salt cellar. C-E-L-L-E-R. Yeah, I know this word because uh, in The Last Supper by Da Vinci, mm. Judas has a spilled salt cellar in front of him. Salt cellar. Huh. A salt cellar should be shaken with as little excess motion as you can manage. <laughs> so you just barely flick your wrist mm -hmm. <laughs> to salt something. <laughs> yeah, you would fail manners class if it was based solely on salt. <laughs> uh -huh, I'd fail a salt Because <laughs> you just like... I you or, violently shake it. I do violently <laughs> shake my salt shaker because sometimes it doesn't and come out fast enough. on every single aspect of the meal, no matter how well I've seasoned it, <laughs> just Sometimes like... it just needs a few extra uh, dozen grams of salt. Oh, gosh. Not sometimes, always, according mm -hmm. to you. The finger bowl. Now... I think I know what that is. That I know. A... I was going to say, I'm going to have you guess what this is, but I first like I have to I find out. Hang on. Let me read what it is. 
Okay, what do you think it is? I think it's a little dish with water, and if your fingers get greasy or barbecue sauce or what have you, <laughs> you can spring, you can go put your fingers in the dish to get your fingers moist and then wipe mm. them off in the napkin. You're right. Wow. You're totally right. I didn't know that. I never heard of this before. And they say it's for the dessert course, which is interesting because they also say, so it says, um, the guest picks up the bowl and the doily under it and places them above and to the left of his plate. The dessert fork and spoon, which are also brought in on the dessert plate, should be placed on either side of the plate. When the dessert course is over, the fingertips of one hand at a time are dipped into the finger bowl and dried on the napkin. Hmm. But it's interesting because I thought it would be for a dessert that you eat with your hands. Yeah, but it's not. But it it's, says with a fork and that's spoon. That's really weird. That's some ritualistic nonsense. Yeah. No, it must be for something you needed your hands for. Like a grape. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> or something. I thought it'd be for ribs. <laughs> they didn't eat ribs I guess not They would remove the bones or something How to eat different foods What's silver? If the table is properly set The guest should have no difficulty in deciding which piece of silver to use for each course He simply uses it in the order in which it is placed Starting from the outside and working in toward the plate All forks, with the exception of the oyster fork <laughs> You know, the oyster, the oyster fork, fork Are placed at the left of the plate all knives, spoons, and the oyster fork are placed at the right. If you do happen to use the wrong silver, it is unlikely that anyone will notice your error if you maintain your composure and ignore your mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Probably everyone else has done the same thing at some time, so that if your mistake is noticed, it will not be judged harshly. However, if you're in doubt about how to attack a certain course, be slow to start so that you can see what the others do. That is good to know, though. You just, like, start from the outside and work your way in. I knew that part. So you don't have to think about it. And I knew that the the knife faces the fork, because you pretend the fork is trying to get to the spoon, and the knife is protecting him. <laughs> the problem I have is knowing which type of utensil to use, because you can start from the outside in all you want, but if they serve you a course and you don't know if you eat it with a fork or a spoon, <laughs> that's hmm. a problem. I guess you just go based on what other people are doing. Uh-huh. And it's almost always a fork if it's fancy, right? Mm. They don't want you to, like, shovel things in. Oh, my gosh. It says this right here. <laughs> my eyes just went here. A fork should be used in preference to a spoon whenever possible. Also, when it is possible to cut food with the side of a fork instead of a knife, do so. The knife is used primarily for cutting. It should not be used to plaster food on the fork. On the fork, <laughs> and of course, it is never used to convey food to the mouth. Um, that's interesting that they say to use the side of the fork instead of a knife. I would think I they would, would think, say yeah, that's, that's uncouth. Yeah, to use a knife for all your cutting. When to use the fingers? The following food should be picked up and eaten with the fingers: olives, radishes, celery, slivers of raw carrot, <laughs> canapé, and potato chips. Cherries, grapes, pears, apples, etc. They say you should eat bacon with a fork in here. That seems what weird. do they know? That seems weird. Chicken and chops. No meat should be eaten with the fingers, nor should the fingers be used for assistance, even when eating chicken, squab, squirrel, or chops. <laughs> squirrel? Squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> also, what's squab? Alexa, what's squab? According to Wikipedia, in culinary terminology, squab is a young domestic pigeon, typically in the form what? of cold, or its meat. 
Gross. Eating pigeons and squirrels up in here. What are they talking? But you can't use your fingers. Don't, you, don't be a. We don't want you to be a caveman. <laughs> when you eat your squirrel, eat your squirrel. Be polite. <laughs> eat your squirrel with a fork, <laughs> like a civilized person. <laughs> but also, have they never had a chicken finger? Anyways, <laughs> how do you eat a drumstick? You're supposed to cut that up. I guess. Yeah, I bunch guess of so. nonsense. Developing a winning personality. Your personality is your life. <laughs> Today, there is no end of enthusiastic talk about personality and its value in business and social life. As if personality were something new in the world. Exclamation point. That's the first exclamation point I've seen in this book. <laughs> Psychologists are theorizing about it. Businessmen are paying high prices for it. In movies and TV... Sorry. <laughs> TV didn't exist. Well, it did, but... Movies and radio are filling our eyes and ears with it, and nearly everybody is trying to cultivate it. We all know how essential it is in a successful and happy life, yet none of us seems to have found the whole secret of it. We go on admiring it where we find it, somewhat mystified about what it really is, and wondering just how we might go about acquiring a little more of it for ourselves. Personality is not a single trait, a way of smiling, sex appeal, sophistication, energy, youthfulness, although any such traits may play a part in it. Nor is it merely a miscellaneous collection of traits with no purpose to hold them together. Our personality is all of our personal qualities taken together, produced by the interaction between our nature and the world, and so involved with each other that they cannot be thought of as being separate. It's not something that can be turned on for special occasions in the office or in social life. It is really what we are on the average, at home, in public, in business conferences, in solitude, in our attitudes, in our thoughts, and most of all, what we do. It is life itself. So how can you consciously develop it? Changes in our character that occur after our adolescence are likely to be developments of traits formed earlier, mature variations on the original theme. This is our point. Although we cannot change ourselves entirely for the better or worse, we can, by observation and reasonable effort, make much better use of qualities that we have. I like that. Yeah. That, like, everyone has the potential to have a nice personality. <laughs> you just gotta work on it. <laughs> Expressing your personality. The tragedy of many lives is that their aims are not clearly defined. They suffer from the conflict of cross-purposes, indecision, and random activity. That's me. <laughs> Everyone knows that he is happiest when busy and doing what he likes to do. For when we have a purpose, we have a guide through life's distractions, self-forgetfulness, and a feeling of accomplishment when the course is run. Unfortunately, many of us are ever in pursuit of little things, so that our desires compete with and defeat each other, and so we suffer from emotional and mental instability. The extraordinary person is the person who has gone beyond the ordinary in forming his ideals and ambitions and in being loyal to his best intentions. I guess they're saying to find purpose in your life so that you have a better personality. Yeah, or at least you're happier. I yeah. think that's fine for me. That's true for me. I always get depressed when I don't have anything to do. Mm. Or if you have to do something you don't like doing. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, you're, like, markedly more depressed when that happens. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if I feel that way. Well, I guess I do in general. If if I feel like I don't have anything to look forward to, that's very mm, depressing yep, to yep, me. Yep, yep, yep. That's the one. But I don't know that it affects my personality that much. 
Yeah. I don't know. The thing that affects my personality the most, I think, is whether or not I feel comfortable around people. Because, like, if I just met someone or if I'm in a group of, like, all strangers, then I definitely am more reserved and I just, like, don't talk (laughs) at all. (laughs) But then if I'm around even just, like, one person that I feel comfortable with, then I'm fine. I'm happy. I'm, like, Mm -hmm. I'm talkative even. So, yeah, that's the only thing for me. To bring out my personality. How do you bring out my personality? I think you have to be doing something that you think is fun. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Because even if you're with people you like, but you're not doing something that you like doing, then you'll just be quiet. But if you're having fun in the situation, then you'll have your fun personality. (laughs) Your personality is dynamic. It needs expression. And only your own efforts will express it. Everyone has talents and energies that are not exhausted in making a living, and he should be alert to use them expressively instead of wasting them or letting them run to seed. It's been said that you cannot kill time without killing eternity. Certainly you cannot kill time without killing your potentialities. Ho ho ho. Fortunate is the office girl who has discovered the fun of learning to sing and doing beautiful needlework. That's me. That is you. (laughs) The barber who sometimes startles people passing his shop with his renderings from Pagliacci. (laughs) (laughs) The bank president who is restless for spring and the opening of the gardening season. The engineer who plays the violin. The housewife who loves to make not only a decent but a beautiful home. These people have not been discouraged by the realization that they could be easily excelled in their hobbies by experts. They have been wise enough to see that what counts for happiness is the pleasure of expression. I don't I don't know about the housewife whose hobby is just being a more of a housewife. <laughs> being a housewife. I think what they meant was that she likes to decorate or something. Okay. They didn't really say that, but you know. That was what I was hoping they meant. Mm -hmm. Um, All of the positive traits of your personality come to a focus on the objective you set for yourself. That objective gives you a sense of direction. At the same time, it practically assures your achievement. When you have found the purposes around which your life can be organized and harmonized, you will have a personality that can win for you success and happiness. The end. Wow. And that's that was charm and personality. Um, I feel like the end was a little bit of lip service. They spend the whole book... I liked it. Oh. <laughs> they spend the whole book telling you exactly what you should do and how to change yourself. And then at the end, they're like, eh, but like, you know, do what, do what makes you happy. Well, what if what makes me happy is eating chicken with my fingers? <laughs> That's a good point. You can be yourself. Just don't be, just don't be yourself. Don't you be know? totally yourself. <laughs> <laughs> be yourself to a point. Mm-hmm. Be yourself with your gardening. But I liked it. I like the CE, the, the the bank manager or whatever it said that likes gardening. <laughs> I think that's nice. Yeah. And he should. No, I mean, yeah, like I said, the end was kind of like lip service. Like, that's what they should have been saying throughout the book. Right. But they only said right. it at the very end. That, like, do what makes you happy. Um, that being said... I loved this book as a teenager just because I liked I liked reading the perspective of people from mid-century or whatever. Did you learn anything from it as a teenager? I did like read the fashion advice and stuff, but again, it was like I wasn't wearing I wasn't even wearing dresses or anything as a teenager, so I I definitely like didn't listen to any of it. 
It taught me uh, to take everything with a grain of salt. A <laughs> cellar not, of salt. But not too much salt. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think I think when I was a teen, like, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't easily swayed by what a book told me to do. So <laughs> I think I was just kind of laughing at the rigidity of the rules. But I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? To look back and kind of be glad that... Um, I don't have to wear a tux to dinner. <laughs> yeah. Even just normal dinner at your own house. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for joining us for this uh, charm and personality lesson from this old book. Yeah, I think I'm going to be a lot more charming and have much more personality after this. <laughs> well, I guess I'll be the judge of that since uh-huh. we're kind of stuck together I guess so. for a while. <laughs> All right. Um, we will catch you next time on the Dusty Pages podcast. That's the one you're listening to. It is. Be sure to rate, like, subscribe. (laughs) All right. See you next time. Bye. See ya.